Hey everybody, today's guest is bassist and lead vocalist Kenny Vasoli from the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania pop punk band The Starting Line. Together we dive deep into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the Billboard modern rock chart hit single Island, taken from their 2007 album Direction. Once again, worlds collide here on Krista Makes a Podcast as Kenny and I share numerous stories about the producer of this song and record, Howard Benson. The band were young and hungry, but weren't quite ready for the change out of the gate that Howard presented them with, like chopping up their songs through editing, his overall recording approach and studio team, and bringing in session musicians. Some of these were hard pills to swallow, but ultimately Kenny feels like it made them a better band overall. The demo for Island was pretty close to what ended up being on the recording, except they needed a chorus, and the musical interlude they came up with after the demo is pure genius. Oh, and the band has pretty much had the same lineup since 1999. Bands are a complicated animal, so this is no small feat to accomplish. So for all this and a whole lot more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Kenny, how's it going? Good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Where are you this afternoon? So I'm in a suburb of Philadelphia. Willow Grove is like kind of the closest place off the turnpike that people would know about. Yeah, you guys are Philly guys, right? Yeah, for the most part. Everybody was just sort of in the suburbs like surrounding Philadelphia. Like I was in a place called Horsham. Tom was in a place called Croydon. And then, yeah, Matt lived in Churchville. And Mike was in a place called Southampton. It was all like Bucks, Montgomery County, just like 20 minutes from Philadelphia. What about you? Are you in Florida right now or are you elsewhere? No, I live in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. Yeah, oh, cool. I'm, I'm not in Florida anymore. Yeah, we only, we only have two guys in Florida now. Everyone, everyone's spread out. So. Sick. That, <laughs> that's how it goes. That is how it goes. But, you know, something that I thought was really, really cool. You know, I research uh, the song and, of course, the song we're talking about today uh, is Island from your third record. But in researching you guys, something that's totally admirable and very, very difficult to do. Four of you guys have been with the band since 99. Original guys. You on, on bass and, and lead vocals, Matt on rhythm guitar, Mike on lead guitar, and Tom on the drums. And the new guy, Brian, on keyboards, he's been there since 2007. So that's a feat in and of itself. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, and just to give Brian his flowers, he's pretty much been there since 2005 as well as like a touring member. He just started to appear on the records in, in 07. But yeah, we feel very very lucky and I feel grateful. We kind of just weathered the storm with each other's like developing personalities. And and we were even so just playing shows this weekend and sort of talking about that. Like we feel very lucky to have found ourselves on the other side of, you know, growing up. And it's uh, it's a very comfortable thing to be with the same guys since then. Yeah, I got three out of five right now, and our, our sax player has been with us since uh, about the time you guys started, around around 2000. But uh, there, there's nothing, you know, when you go when you go see a band to have as many original players as you can, and, and the fact that you guys are all still together, that's great. Oh, thanks, man. And three out of five ain't bad. You three know? out of five ain't nah. Three out of three out of five ain't bad. I think it sounds like a meatloaf song. Um, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I gotta tell you, not gonna go into the whole backstory, but you're you know you guys signed with with Drive Through. That was your first uh, label. 
And around the time I knew Richard and Stephanie Rains, they were just signing bands left and right. It was like every other week. It was you guys, Newfound Glory, Hidden in Plain View, Early November, Phoenix TX, on and on. But the quality of the bands that they were signing, every time they'd be like, this band's the greatest in the world. I'm like, okay, well, you've had a pretty good run here. And then you guys at some point were that next band. And it was like they were putting out quality stuff. And next thing I know, you guys were doing you know, all the Warp Tours and everything else. And it kind of got you into that scene. Yeah, uh, that was definitely instrumental in us finding our lane. Uh, the drive-through thing, was always, you know, that was always a place where we saw ourselves really fitting in ever since we started the band. It was, you know, it seemed like it was right in the path of the the sound that we were really interested in. And but it also had an accessibility and a DIY kind of nature to it. Like we knew that they started it out of their garage and we really respected that. And we also knew that they were Jersey folks, which was the place we seemed to be getting the most response as like a, a grassroots, you know, like starting out kind of band. And so it was a it was a great fit for us, and uh, especially at the time where they seemed to have the peak of their powers, so to speak, it was a a blessed time for sure. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you know, and I, I've talked about it on this show many times about that scene. That Jersey scene was just so fertile around the time you guys were coming up. Even for for less than Jake, a couple years earlier than you guys, we'd go through there and there was always multiple places to play. VFW halls, churches, uh, backyard parties. And, you know, that was was another thing for us. When we got up there, it was a whole different world. We didn't really see that in Florida. Yeah, Jersey was a real exception for the type of music that we were playing. Because even in 99, 2000, when we started up, there wasn't a whole lot of bands to sort of cozy up with that had a similar sound to us. There was maybe one or two that we found in the area, but for the most part, it seemed like Jersey was, for whatever reason, kind of finding this sound that was still a little bit aggressive and a little bit fast, but was uh, veering more towards the melodic side of things. And so once we started getting on some shows at, at like the firehouses and Elks Lodges and, and and all that sort of scene in Jersey, we really started to, I feel like, find some fans and, that, and that's where we sort of gained steam. I remember doing like five, six, seven shows in Jersey and we'd be working our way down the East Coast. And they'd all be VFW DIY type shows. And then they would all go off. There'd be like 100, 200, 300 kids going berserk. And then we'd get down to like Richmond, Virginia, the next stop. And it was like, the brakes just came on, you know? So we actually very early on felt like our band was something because of the scene in Jersey. Yeah, I can definitely identify with that. We maybe had like a warped mentality of how successful we were by, you know, the response that we were getting in Jersey. And then like (laughs) our first tour, we were like, okay, this is how you really grind and you got to do that for a while. But yeah, even from those early years, even till present day, we still feel the love in Jersey and it's been kind of ever strong and i it's been pretty amazing for us like to play places like starland and and still get like relatively wild reactions for how long we've been doing this and and for how little kind of activity we've put out well that's the thing you know you, you know i mentioned a little bit ago about the backstory i was going to go into the whole thing you know you guys did a record with drive through 
And uh, the next record was on Geffen, the major label debut. And then from there, you went right to Virgin. You weren't happy with that deal. And the record on Virgin, your third full-length album, Direction, was released July 31st of 2007. And Island uh, is on that record. It was your band's lone charting single, peaking at number 21 on the Billboard Modern Rock charts. The album peaked at number 30 on the Billboard 200 chart. Uh, Island was track four out of 12, so it wasn't buried. Did you kind of think that... There was maybe something here with this song. That's why it was front loaded on the record. I don't know how much calculation went into the sequencing of it. I think that, yeah, we, it was definitely being groomed as a single even before we we laid it down. So we d- were prepared for, for that treatment of it. And I guess that that was probably the mentality of keeping it on, on the A side. Yeah, and I think probably in general that record is kind of front loaded with the with the potential like usual suspect type singles. And then the back half was sort of like our record to play with and lots of parallels Uh, again this has happened on on a number of episodes here on the show because the album was produced by howard benson which less than jake has uh much history with howard the uh you guys recorded at bay seven studios out in valley village uh and sparky dark studio in calabasas uh howard's howard's places out there with engineer mike plotnikoff who's just absolutely amazing and hat the engineer who's can't, can't say enough about him but um what was that like and how did you decide on howard to do the third record okay so it's it's a pretty involved long story with our relationship and saga with with howard and to be honest this is sort of the most exciting and intriguing parts of being able to do this podcast with you because i knew that you did hello rock view with him and that was actually a big <laughs> reason that we we trusted him with us it was like that you know that we first of all it seemed like such a strange pairing to us that that record was made with him it's like sort of an anomaly mm-hmm. and also it just sounds so so fantastic that it's sort of undeniable and so that you know, just gave us this like seed of doubt. Like, you know, maybe there is more to this guy than meets the eye and is like on the surface of of his discography. And yeah, so I actually tried to hold off listening to your episode with Howard because I wanted to sort of dig in on our own. (laughs) But I'm glad that, that I did because it gave me a lot of insight to his background and how he sort of found his way with you guys. And also... I, I mean, I, I could go into that episode for, for a long time, but it really was, uh, well, I think it was a good prep for this. Yeah. And I had uh, Nick recently on from All American Rejects and they recorded with Howard. And so we, we spent probably 10 minutes just talking about Howard's sweatpants and Oreo cookies. So, oh my God, feel free to go for it. I, I just <laughs> know that the topic of, uh, and character of Howard Benson is going to, is going to dominate a lot of this conversation just because he is just such a fascinating guy. He is absolutely one of a kind. And, <laughs> and I should just go into this like whole conversation saying like, I have absolutely nothing but admiration and love for this individual like truly i think he's one of the great rock producers of our time oh yeah Uh, oh yeah but you know i might i I might say some things along the course of this conversation that would like make people think otherwise but i i truly admire the man fully well he is uh set in his ways he is very sure of himself not in a cocky way he just he knows his stuff uh but he's a little crazy and you kind of have to be to to be in his position did it help that he's a philly guy a hundred percent and i don't even think we knew that until meeting him like we just we we assumed he was like an la born and bred kind of guy because he was just so ingrained in in that sound i had no idea and i think that maybe that was 
probably one of the reasons he was uh, entertaining the idea of us. Cause like, it was, it was sort of strange. Like we were not, you know, even though we had been on Geffen and had like a little bit of success, I don't know. It wasn't like producers were knocking down our door, at least not in the way that Howard was like Howard was really courting us for some reason. And we had worked together on based on a true story for two songs. Like at, at the end of um, the bulk of working on based on a true story, our sophomore record, we were kind of, you know, us and the label were a little bit feeling like there was there was a little bit more that needed to be done with the singles. And we w- wanted to try to recut them with um, like another producer or two. And so we ended up going with Howard Benson because I think we were impressed with the sound of the um, My Chem record and and a few other things and had worked with him at Bay 7, uh, like kind of in the same fashion that we did Island and really loved it. And then when we were working on one other track at Tracks East in Jersey with Eric Rachel, the, the opening track, Making Love to the Camera, we were there in the studio and we got sent the first mixes for the Based on a True Story, Howard Benson singles. And we were like really put off by how much editing had happened after we left the studio. They had kind of almost been unrecognizable in the way that they were returned to us. Just like a whole lot of liberties taking flying things around and just like yeah. r- really kind of, in my opinion, messing with the, um, the composition of the song in, in a way that I didn't like sign off on. And it was just kind of like, are you guys cool with this? And it wasn't like we were cool with it. Like it, it was a lot of like note passing and stuff to even get that to across the plate. So it was off to a precarious, you know, sort of relationship with him because like I really did enjoy tracking with him. But then afterwards, I felt like this sort of like violation of trust, like, oh, I don't know. You know, this guy is sort of like doing a little bit of funny business in the edit that, uh, you know, now I have to like kind of fight to get my, you know, song the way that I want it to sound. And it's, it was like an uphill battle. So sure. It was, uh, yeah, like I, he, he was almost sort of cast out of our mind as even a possibility for, to you know, as a producer for the future. And so when it was getting- Interesting. Yeah, when it was getting discussed again, everyone kept mentioning him, like saying like, Howard really wants to do this record. Like he really loves you guys. He wor- loves working with you guys. And we were just like, I don't know, like he was a little shady with the last one. And and then, so we we went out to dinner with him and this was the real like clinching conversation. And he was so straight up with me. He was like, yes, I did that to your songs. Yes, I'll probably do that again to your singles. But here's the thing. I'm going to let you guys have the rest of the record to do absolutely whatever you want with. And I'm going to be upfront with you as upfront as possible with the changes that I'm making. But just expect it. Expect that I'm going to still be this guy that's going to mess with the stuff and, and edit because what I do and I, and I think that it's for the best. But um, the rest of the record, you guys can like just basically have run of the asylum and like just go as nuts as you want. And I was and I was like, you know, that's that's a fair deal. And I like that he's owning up to everything. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was just very upfront. And I was just sort of like, you know what? The rest of the band really likes him. The rest of the label likes him. And I really like this honesty that he's giving me. So I'm going to trust him with the record. And at the end of the day, I'm really glad that I did because it's honestly my favorite starting line full length. I think that it's it was the easiest record for us to cut. And he was definitely the guy for the job. Yeah, well, it was recorded, I'm assuming, 
probably uh, sometime early 2007, because the album was released at the end of July that year, it still sounds absolutely amazing 16 years later. It, it sounds great. It sounds like it could be current, uh, s- something out on the radio. And Howard, you know, at least you guys, you signed off on knowing what you were getting. He was upfront and honest. When we, when we made our second record with him in 2006, uh, or 2005, it came out in 06, and that was an eternity from where Howard came from when we first worked with him on Hello Rockview. Yeah. He was a no-name producer. Uh, Sepultura was his first act. We were his second act. Uh, this is after he had his 80s heyday. He wasn't getting phone calls returned. He was looking uh, looked at as a has-been. Next thing you know, he's got P.O.D., My Chem, and then it just went through the roof. By the time he got to you guys, he was pretty seasoned and had a great track record with getting on radio. And I think you know, there's something about owning what you do as a producer in terms of, you know, he said, hey, let me have the two or three singles here. Yeah. You know, I'm owning this. If they fail, you know, if they don't do what we all wanted to do, then that's on me. You guys can have the rest of the record. So again, you knew what you guys were getting in with. Totally. He just asked for for that trust in the singles and we were just agreeing to to give that to him because, you know, I think that he, you know, it's like you said, like he knows what he does and he plays to his strengths and that he just asks for, you know, trust when it comes to that and going into it i was just a lot more comfortable with that that notion that's awesome well i want to get into the track here in a second do you remember writing it was it specific for this record yes uh i don't really remember the beginning of writing it you know i remember we were sort of in the midst of a batch of songs when we were you know in the basement just sort of grinding it out for this record and i knew that we like we were feeling this one this was not an obvious single to us at all in its first form because it was not, it didn't have a chorus. Uh, it didn't have the chorus that we know today. And, and I actually didn't think it had one at all until a few weeks ago in preparation for this, our keyboard player, Brian sent me the demo from when we were tracking in the basement and it, it, it was crazy sounding. I mean, it sounded a lot more like something off a of base on a true story. It had the same, verses essentially i think they were for the most part longer the second verse was definitely doubled and the chorus was this like switching to three four time kind of thing so it was like a little mathier and it had like this like three four swing kind of thing to it and it was like i don't know it felt like we were trying a little bit to make like an at the drive-in song or something like it was just a little bit more boombastic like start and stop not really worrying too much about like writing a pop song. It seemed like we were like a little bit more like the lead off song direction, just trying to do something that was like angular and like a little bit post rock or post punk or, or something. I think it was our call that we knew that the chorus was not holding water. Even by the time we got to pre-production with Howard, like we were, we flagged it with him. Like we even cut out that first demo chorus before he heard it. And uh, we put in what is now the pre-chorus 
And so, ah. and we can sort of get to all this because I know you're going to break it down. But like, that was all we had was just verse and pre-chorus. And we knew that we didn't have a chorus yet. And we told him that it's sort of like to be determined. And I'll tell you something, you know, I, I don't know if I ever brought this up on the show before, but three years into this thing, I just got to thinking how amazing, you know, sometimes you do a song and you don't realize at the time, like, I, again, this is probably just another song when you were when you were writing it, but it's all the components of, you know, getting it to Howard and the changes it went through. But it's always the chorus. I've never had a band in here, an artist say, yeah, well, we had this great chorus, but we had no verses. No, it's it's always we're missing. We're missing the key hook of this track. What is it? But to your point, the pre-chorus of the song it it does have a, a chorus quality to it. Yeah, we knew, we know, like we were sort of like, this is better. This is better than what we had for sure. But we were still like, it just doesn't feel like a chorus. And then and even that pre-chorus was doubled at the time to sort of fill that gap. But so when we went to Howard with our pre-production and we just sort of like played for him in a rehearsal space all through the songs. And then we got to that one, you know, we've even before playing it said, it doesn't have a chorus yet. Uh, we know and then after we played, he said, yeah, it doesn't have a chorus, but that's your single and you're going to want to write a chorus for that one. And so I was like, okay, that's cool. That was kind of the first time that we really felt like, oh shit, maybe there's actually something to this more than, than meets the eye for us. And I was like, okay, I'd love to work on this, but we're uh, you know on the other side of the country from our home. Like, I don't have an acoustic guitar out here. Is it okay if I just borrow one of the studio's acoustics? And he was just like, dude, just go to Guitar Center and just buy a guitar and just give us the receipt and... It's yours. And, I was, and, I was, and I, my mind was fucking blown. I was like, no way. Like, I get to just have a guitar because for making this right. And he was a, he was always that kind of spirit. Like, I'd never worked with a producer before that was just like, yeah, dude, we have a budget, man. Like, use it. And I got to yeah. say, I had not seen the budget for this record until three days ago because I was looking for, we'll get to it, but there was a version that was like rough mix version before Chris Lord Algae got a hands of it. And We'll get there. But uh, I was trying to get that. And our manager sent me everything. He didn't have that, but he sent me everything else he had, which was just a folder of like all the documents and sort of like lodging and demos and like even producer ideas, like stuff I had not seen or like thought about since then. And I saw, I won't reveal the budget of this record, but holy fucking shit, man. Yeah. It's so much more than I thought it was. And uh, so it makes sense that they were like, yeah, you can have a guitar. You can have a, a, a $600 guitar. Absolutely. In 2007, that was right near the end of labels throwing money at bands. It really was. Yeah. Streaming was, become, was becoming a thing and the whole industry was changing. But let's get into the song. It's three minutes and 42 seconds. We got a two-bar intro. Drums, single bass notes, and stereo octave guitars on the first bar. And also stereo guitar stabs. Big distorted stabs with those bass note hits. On bar two, this to me is the hook of the song Kenny it's one of the big hooks and I don't know if this is a keyboard or a keyboard and a guitar like a chorus pedal flanger effect maybe mixed together that take us into verse one do you recall if that is a, is a keyboard that's a keyboard that's Brian's hook right there and in our first version there was a lot more of that it was sort of just like a revolving that dun, 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 dun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that like he plays like a like um, Wurlitzer sounding mo module yeah. pretty much the majority of the time. And so Benson would take like his MIDI and he had a really nice sounding 
MIDI uh, Wurlitzer. I think it was called Velvet, if I remember correctly. It was gorgeous. And then I remember he would like pair that with other just like crazy, probably like omnichord type sounds. And there is a little bit more of like Benson's keyboard magic in there, but that particular uh, lick is schmutz. And that was like, that's honestly like his charm to the band. He's just able to like put these like sweet little hooks that are just like understated, but very nice. Well, and that, you know, going back earlier, what you were talking about of, of getting a song and having it changed around for some of the listeners and maybe didn't get the gist of that. That's kind of like what may have happened here with Brian's key parts. You know, Howard would take that key part and he might run it through another synthesizer and bury it back here and do stuff, though. It's those little nuances and stuff that Howard does. He's, he's a mad scientist. And that's what makes these hit records, all these little components. Absolutely. I really think that I mean, that that sort of thing is the magic that happened between Howard and us. Like, I, I think that we were sort of a, a perfect kind of clay for him to put his hands on sonically because we did like have aggressive tones, but we also had deep pop roots to our sound. And he was um, like unsuspectingly really good at melody and like very intelligent pop melody like he i remember he showed me some idea that he had for reliant k's record and i don't remember what the song was exactly but it was sort of this like modulating shifting like several key change like beach boys type thing that was like he said he said like oh yeah that was, that was my thing right there and um and that became really evident like he was sort of really good like and especially when it came to like building harmonies you could just tell like he really had more of a knack for pop than what you would believe on the surface oh yeah i mean when you know when, when his band would pack up in the 70s and the bars in philly and you know and go out partying you know howard was still there geeking out on his keyboard sounds i mean true story he was that guy he's the first composer we ever worked with and having that knowledge you know i, I don't read music my music education is very rudimentary and howard came in and i was a young kid on hello rock view and the stuff that he taught me is 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 forever priceless i gotta ask kenny is this a hi-hat is it like a programmed loop that's running under this song mixed in with real drums that's what it sounds like okay so the drum track in itself is sort of a whole saga and we can start to get into it now but uh i i guess we should just sort of like say it that like we cut this whole song and it had different drum groove for the verse and i from what i can remember the chorus drum groove was essentially the same that disco uh you know like double time yes. hi hat like four on the floor mm -hmm. that all that i think was there but we had what was true to the original demo like this groove that was sort of it didn't have snares on the 2 and 4 it had like anticipating and snares so it was like this guess guess this guess guess So it wasn't, you know, like it didn't have that straightforward thing. Gotcha. And it was never an issue the whole time that we were there. And then so the it got Bensonized after I left and they did not ask like if I was cool with changing the beat. They just brought in Kenny Arnoff to recut the drums for the whole thing. And then so they just sort of like asked forgiveness after they did that. And it was like, uh, honestly, probably weeks of like uh, negotiation 
between the label and Benson and I like just trying to like, I was fighting so hard to like get it back to this original version because I've come to terms with it and I've like definitely found peace with the, with the drums as they are today because like I understand what they had in mind to make it more listener friendly and to make it more straightforward. Hey, don't don't feel bad. Every band that's on a major, yeah, most every band has gone through this. Yeah. They have. There's a reason why Kenny Aronoff plays on on hit records. It's because there's a swing you can tell someone what to do. It doesn't take the sting away from what you're talking about. Right. Uh, I've had I've had it happen. I've I've handed my guitar over. Usually it was to Roger to play parts. Right. You know, certain things. He just he just played cleaner. And I said, here, at the end of the day, in my mind, I always knew that I'd be the guy on stage playing it. It wasn't going to be Kenny Aronoff playing the drums or whoever. So that always got me through that, but still a hard pill to swallow as a younger band. Definitely. I was for sure at the sort of the most stubborn that I had been with the band as far as what I wanted to accomplish with records. Because, I mean, to me, it wasn't about like, the promotion of records or like how well they even charted. Like I I'd never knew what they charted on, on, you know, rock billboard until today. It just didn't, it didn't matter to me because like, I know at the end of the day, like that stuff can be so fleeting. I've seen enough of the bands that are our contemporaries sure. that have success. And then six months later, you know, people can barely remember who they are. So I, I knew that that wasn't really like, did not mean success. And I, I was much more like had the long view of like, I have to play this every night. So I want it to be something that I love. And if it's something that I really don't love, then I'm going to fight for it to be something that I love. And especially yeah, when yeah. it's something that like, we are all there, you know, we're all talking about this at great length. And then, you know, like if he at that, you know, like during, you know, those weeks of sessions was like, I really don't think that this like drum groove is like what, where it's at. I would have been 100% receptive to it. It's, it's the thing of like having this guy that played the drums on this song is very important to me. And I've never met the gentleman before, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't want to talk shit on, on Arnoff. Like I, I, I know that he's a greatly accomplished drummer and like completely, you know, decorated uh, with like tons of awards and has been on like so many iconic recordings. Like, so not taking anything away from him, but at the same time, like I got to give Tom his flowers. Like Tom is our drummer and you know, like Tom is kind of our Ringo. I feel like he has this imperfection about his playing that is actually really charming to me. And, um, the sort of like thing that uh, broke me to the side of like, let just let them have it, let them have this the way that they want it and let it, you know, let it exist, just play ball with it was that Tom was totally cool with it. You know, like he had enough like security within himself to know like, this is what's best for the band and everybody. Yeah. Team player. Felt team that player. way. Yeah. Everyone was being, everyone was being a team player except for me because I felt like, fuck, this is my song and I don't want to fucking it to be something that it, yeah. that, other than what's in my brain. And, you know, there's just sometimes you like, you have to pick your battles. And I was really like fighting it for a while. And then once everybody else was just sort of like so comfortable with it, then I just sort of had to give it up. And, and I truly have come to, to terms with it, but it's something that is still a little bit of like a sore spot just because I don't know. I, it just doesn't feel great the way they went about it. Sure. And I don't think uh, I, I can't, 
speak for Howard, but if I were to bet it wasn't diabolical, I think a lot of times, how many times have you done this? I'll be sitting, it'll be two in the morning. I'm about to turn my studio stuff off and it finally hits me. Now I know why this song's not hitting me in the heart. It's because that drum on the two and four is not there. Yeah. You know, and it could, and then all of a sudden you get now going about it the way they did behind your back. Yeah, that sucks. But again, it's awesome that Tom was a team player. He's the drummer. And uh, again, he's still there. Totally. Fucking A. <laughs> and he plays yeah. it. You know, he plays that part. Like it's it's something that he's got to play every night. So honestly, like what if it makes uh, him comfortable, then like, honestly, it's his call. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's a nuanced thing for me, I think, that is like really the thing that's most unsettling. Because when you're talking about that, like, is it, you know, like a, a program thing? It sounds that way, I think, because we weren't able to play to the drums. And that's just something that as a bass player is very important to me. Like that, that is like sure. the core of the pocket is for the bass being able to being glued deliberately to the drums and if it's not it just feels a little bit out of place but you know it is what it is and i think that when it's something as quantized and sort of on the grid as that song was i think that it's it's pretty forgivable for the ear but you know now everyone knows hey everybody we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors but we'll be right back with lots more with kenny vasoli Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. Verse one here is a double verse. And I, you know, the beginning of this song, I almost wondered the first couple of times listening to it, why that keyboard hook didn't go through more. And now I, I immediately knew why after verse one, yeah. because it happens a lot. Okay. But it's good. It is one of the, uh, one of the big hooks of the song, but we got a double verse here on verse one. Same instrumentation as the intro. Let's sail away, find our own country. We'll build a house and beds out of palm trees. Let's get away. Let's push our lives aside. I'll sport a smile, take in some color. Under the stars, I'll be your lover. With no distractions, I'm gonna treat you right. So uh, this song was about a relationship that, it was my first ever long-term relationship. You know, we had been together since I was, I mean, on and off, uh, but f mainly on and since I was like 16 years old. And at this point, I'm like probably 22, 23 when I'm making this record. I think, yeah, yeah, probably just turned 23. And we had, you know, been going through a rough patch, as you can probably, you know, gather from the lyrics. And uh, we were actually just coming off a breakup and we were still kind of 
sort of broken up at that point, but now I was in LA and that was, you know, her home city. And we were sort of rekindling at that time. And it was just sort of like an idealistic song about like, you know, maybe if we just didn't have any distractions of life, that maybe this could actually be like smooth sailing for us. And that was just sort of the idea of it. Like I was just trying to sort of like at that time, get back on her good graces. Uh, Cause I felt like probably pretty lonely after the breakup and, and we were, you know, I, I probably should like bite my tongue a little bit. I don't want to get too personal about the relationship between her and I, because it's, you know, we haven't spoken for a, a long time. Not that there's bad blood, but uh, I'll leave it a little bit more like ambiguous, but at, the, at you know, understood. Yeah. Generally it's about, you know, just trying to like, get through the rough patches of a relationship that is quite imperfect and thinking idealistically if there was nothing else but her and I that like this could somehow all be okay. But I mean, it was all over for good, like within the year after that. So it was like, I mean, there was like, you can sort of tell like my mindset at that time that I'm like, just like grasping at straws to try to like make this thing work, yeah. uh, which I'm sure, you know, people can identify with. But hey, isn't that amazing? We, we get our best known songs out of pain and misery. Yeah. <laughs> they, r- rarely do they come out of uh, a sunshine, sunshine and palm trees as the lyrics indicate here. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Um, at Let's Push Our Lives Aside, we get a two-bar re-intro. Uh, that keyboard lick, uh, the first time is the same as the intro, but on the second bar, Kenny, the lick changes two notes on the back half. Yeah, it has a little extra tag. It just makes it super hooky, those two notes. Do you remember uh, if that was Brian or if that was Howard or, or how that came about? If I'm going off of the logic of the first demo, I think that it was always that full hook with the extra two notes. And then it was either in the session between Howard and Brian or Howard's editing that he probably chopped off those notes. And then, you know, even like, I mean, that lick happened probably three times as much as it does in this final version from the demo. So I imagine there was just a lot of like, let's do this less and then let's see what it happens if we just scale it back more and more and save up the full lick. Took me a couple times listening through to go. Why is it different in the second one? And it's, it was only two notes, and it finally hit me. It's like duh, yeah. but I love it. I, I uh, think I think it's such a great hook. At the very end here, before we go into pre-chorus one, we get another two-bar reintro with that keyboard hook leading us into pre-chorus one. You know, listening back to the song, right after you say with no distractions, I'm going to treat you right, you could have went right into the pre-chorus right there. Do you recall having that conversation? We got to bring back the keyboard hook because now it's the third time in the song you've heard it. There weren't a lot of uh, conversations about the keyboard parts. The way that Howard works, and I don't know if this was the same for you, but he was uh, recording this like a factory you know, like he would, oh, yeah, he would do drums. <laughs> and that was sort of the like the drums were were the the part of it that we were the most together. After that, we pretty much didn't see each other until like dinner time because while 
Mike was finishing guitars. Like once a song was done, he would just send it up to vocals. Yes. And then I would just start like cutting vocals. And then we would maybe do like, we would already have like scratch bass. We would just do things sort of like staggered in different rooms all at the same time. So everything went very quickly. And so someone may have been recording with Brian even as I was recording vocals. And then, you know, things just sort of happened very quickly. Things got edited like on the fly, but like things like that, he would play them for me. And like, how do you like this? Like, how does this sound to you? And like when, you know, we'll get to the middle eight part, you know, like parts that were new to me. I keep using the the, the term hook, yeah. but there's a reason why that keyboard part's there. It's part haunting. It's got, it's just, it's catchy. Yeah. Uh, and, and otherwise it wouldn't have been there. You would have went right into pre-chorus one, but let's get into these lyrics here and talk about these. Well, it seems like things are only getting better well it seems like we can never catch a break that was the like original chorus and so that was sort of like that was to me just like the actual final thought and the sort of like core subject of the whole thing but then yeah it was sort of like an unresolved thing it, it needed to sort of have a little bit more explanation and a little bit more hopefulness to it i like the ambiguity of it well it seems like things are only getting better and then the very next line is well it seems like we can never catch a break like totally it just always you know when it seems like we have it all figured out then the other shoe would always seem to drop gotcha well here's a howard thing and i don't know if you had ever done this before but there's a really cool lower octave vocal it's the first time we hear double voices in the song is that you ghosting yourself yes it is you okay yeah uh I love that. It's not a harmony. It's just an octave. Uh -huh. It's 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 really cool. It's subtle. It's not mixed super loud. Uh, the stereo guitars and bass guitar are still here playing stabs for the most part. Halfway through, there's a killer bass run. I love the bass tone on this as well. Oh, it's it's such you. a great bass run. Things are only getting better. Well, it seems like we can never and there is a new arpeggiated guitar part running through this whole pre-chorus. And that part adds such a great tension to this part before the chorus launches. Hell yeah. I love, you know, like start and stop things. Like that was the the big charm to me for this song before we had the choruses. Like I like the start and stop thing that was sort of like sounded like a, like a more pop, like refused idea or something. And then also, you know, like Jimmy World's Futures was big on just like big, chunky, loud, you know, block guitars with really pretty perpetuating either arpeggios or just sort of pedaling happening underneath. And we were yeah. definitely inspired by that kind of sound. Yeah, it's got like a post-punk hardcore thing about those gents, those stops. It's, it, it's cool. Uh, chorus one comes quick. And there's a lot of song here already. I was surprised how quick this came. At 48 seconds, we're into the chorus. Just keep a hold on me to let go If you float away, if you float away Waiting too long for a ship to close Don't you float away, don't you float away Just to keep a hold on me, don't let go if you float away, if you float away, waiting too long for a ship to come, don't you float away, don't you float away. Uh, the first time the stereo guitars and bass guitars are continuously playing in the song. They're not staccato doing gingents, uh, you know, besides the octaves that were going earlier. The, the whole band is, is continuously playing here. Uh, it totally opens up. There's also another jangly arpeggiated guitar throughout the chorus 
And I think I'm hearing a synth running underneath, maybe some pads there. Would that be uh, uh, correct? Yes, for sure. I think, yeah, uh, Schmutz had his um, keyboard parts, and then I'm sure that he probably blended his whirly with some organ or something like that. There was some some wizardry happening in the midi there. And by the way, Brian might have the coolest name in rock and roll, Brian Schmutz. Oh, yeah. It doesn't get much better. Yeah, it doesn't oh, yeah. get much better than that. And uh, <laughs> just to speak on what you were talking about, how he has like these like sort of haunting, uh, but very like melodic Poppy. and hooky things. Yeah. So that was 100% what always attracted me to him. Uh, he was in this band in like the mid 90s uh, when I first met him called Inkling. And they were like, sort of deftones were kind of the closest thing to it that were in existence at the time. But to me, it was like Thursday, you know, like four years before Thursday even were around. Like he was just this, um, yeah. he always had this like really strange, dark pop sensibility to him. And it was, it just always attracted me to the the music that he made. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we linked up. And ever since he and I started, you know, collaborating together, like, he always has these like little perfect things that just like that um, ha- has a great knack for it. Well, these are also the first harmonies in the song. Uh, they come on the second and fourth line, float away, if you float away. And then we get into verse two, immediately from chorus one into verse two. We don't get the keyboard hook here. Hey, let's go to bed. Let's stop debating. Look at the time. We're You don't have a reintro here; it just goes right into it because I think it's been it was front loaded in that uh, double verse. Yeah, yeah. I cannot breathe when we play this song live. I just got to say that, and like, I wish <laughs> that there was like this is by far the hardest song for us to sing in the set list. It's top of the range and no breaths. I had Keith from Every Time I Die on the song that we did. It he doesn't stop singing for three and a half minutes, and I even said to him, I said, you know, do you think about now when you're in the studio not to make this mistake again? Because some of our early songs, same thing. I can't hardly do them live. Yeah, and so this chorus too, like this was the like bring the guitar home from Guitar Center and just like work for the weekend and like get the chorus down, like playing around with it, and then stumbled across those four chords, and then I knew that this shit was going to be at the top of my range. But it just sounded so good. Like when I did hit that high note, if I could like really get to it, just filled up the room really nice. I did not calculate how difficult it would be for because the verse is quite, you know, like uh, at the ceiling of my range as well. It's awesome, though. I love how it goes up there, that octave. It just makes that that chorus lift. And this is a true chorus that it sounds like you guys were missing uh, on that demo. Again, immediately into, uh, into verse two from chorus one. Let's go to bed. Let's stop debating. Look at the time. We're always waiting. But we're in love, and that should be just fine. Yeah, it's all pretty much like just the same thing. Like, uh, And that verse was a lot longer at first, uh, which I forgot about until hearing the, the demo. And it's got like some pretty cringy lines that I'm glad we got rid of. It's like, you know, let, let, like we're not relating and things like this. It's just like, oh my God, it's just too much, too much of that rhyme happening uh, and i think <laughs> Those are I like just... my lyrics <laughs> <laughs> no, man, not at all. i uh yeah i've definitely gotten better to, at editing over the years and, and i've definitely from hearing the demo like picked the the best like pared it down self-restraint and editing is the best tool of any musician yes and I'm, i i still struggle with both something really interesting here and i'm wondering if this is a howard thing there's two 
triangle. It sounds like a little bell. Ding. Yes. Little triangle. It's on the word bed and it's right before debating. It almost sounds like a clock, like a ding on an alarm clock or something. I'm wondering why it wasn't on the next line. Look at the time. Ding. There's no ding there. It's only on the first two lines. How did that happen? I think that that's probably just the way that it's mixed because the guy, Lenny Castro, who did the um, percussion on all the songs on that record, um, I, from hold what on. I remember, did he do it in, in my notes? It says Louis Conti because I've met both of those guys. Oh, was it Louis or was it Lenny? Oh, I wonder. I just am going off of man. You could have it. You could have it right. I w- I'm going off Wikipedia, which has lied to me many, many times in the past. Kenny. <sighs> man, I, I feel totally embarrassed that, that I don't know this gentleman's name by heart. I am going off of the budget sheet. They had it for Lenny Castro. So that's that's the only way I got that name. Those are the two guys in L.A., Lenny or, or Louis, Louis Conti. So either one of those guys, it doesn't matter. But the, and I can't wait till we talk about the bridge part because that yeah. what they what's going on there is rad. Oh, I mean, I was mystified during the percussion session. Um, I was just like completely jaw to the floor, like just eating it up the entire time. And for what I remember, he just cycled through that triangle the entire song. And then it probably was just like a mixed decision thing of where where it appeared. Okay, because I can only if, if it's there, uh, I can only hear it the first two times on the last line. And that should be just fine. The keyboard hook returns for two bars. You get the changing notes at the uh, at the second pass there before we get into pre-chorus two. Same lyrics here as pre-chorus one. You got that cooler, lower octave vocal happening. And again, I swear I hear the triangle here in pre-chorus two, but sporadically. It doesn't follow a ding, ding, ding. It's just like, it's just kind of there in different spots. And I'm going, and then I would, I would rewind it, listen to it again. And I'd swear I'd hear it in different spots. It was really messing with my head. Yeah. You know, I tried (laughs) my hardest to be present for the mixes with Chris Lord Algae. Like I was, and this was like when I was really first starting to get into producing as well. So I was, I really wanted to, you know, I was like, I worked on this record. Like he's got to let some artists in the room when he mixes. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You come, come on down. You can be present for mixing. And what they do is, they just like sort of put me in like the waiting area with all the cookies and they let me smoke my weed and like watch TV and they're like, all right, so I'll get the mix going and then I'll bring it in here and you can hear it. And I didn't get to see anything that he did. Um, But I imagine that's the, probably that's like him just riding the faders and like feeling it like when he wanted to. And there is so much liberty, especially guys like Chris Lord Algae, some of your famous mixers, they get liberty with this stuff, you know, Hey, you know, do a pass and I and, and I want it exactly what it is. And then sometimes the producer will say to them, do a pass, but add some of your Lord Algae flair there. And they'll start kicking things around and doing doing stuff. It's it's interesting how that happens. But I, I love that it's sporadic. I think it's really cool. We go immediately into chorus two here. We get a double chorus this time. Don't you 
The lyrics are exactly the same both times. The harmony placement's the same. Was that ever uh, a discussion? Hey, we should change up this this chorus here, or even the end of the song. I noticed the lyrics are all the same. Not for me. I always sort of like to keep it as simple as I can because I do, when I am left to have some room with that stuff, I do maybe take it like further than it needs to be. Like I, I, I sometimes complicate things to a fault, you know? And And songs like this, I feel like, you know, there's bands like Weezer where it's just like there. It doesn't feel like it should change up, or if it does a little bit on the last one, that that's great. But uh, simplicity was something that, especially on this record, I try to play into our strength of of simplicity. And um, yeah, and you know, like I feel like where it does change up is just those like sort of ad libs that he asked me to throw in there, which I've never even really tried before. Like Benson was basically like just try to do like kind of soul singer ad libs for the backgrounds. And then I just like could kind of just put whatever lines I wanted to, whether nonsensical or not. But I wasn't too concerned with getting a variation on the lyrics. Something uh, I didn't mention in chorus one, is there acoustic guitars here in the chorus is ghosting? I'm hearing a uh, percussiveness to the strumming here. And I'm wondering if there's acoustic, uh, an acoustic there buried back uh, somewhere. Yeah, I, I'd have to listen to it, but that seems like something that we would have done on this one we were layering quite quite a few guitars but I, I wasn't always there for guitar so it really seemed evident on chorus two i went back to chorus one and i thought i heard it there too it could be pushed back sounds right on the second half here after the line just keep a hold on me don't let go uh you get a backing vocal kind of panned off left uh, slightly left of don't let go this uh backing kind of like a call and response uh there's also a vocal pad these stacks of ahs oh, yeah. that are kind of buried here on the second half they're they're there they're audible but they're not sticking out too much but man it just adds such a great depth to, to the second half of this chorus yes yeah it was so fun cutting vocals with howard um i get sort of neurotic when i'm working with a, a producer the first time with vocals because it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to be doing oh, you yeah. know especially like when you're not always feeling your best you know you always try to relax as much as you can and give your best performance but i know that this guy's worked on serious records so he really um i think one of my favorite aspects of working with him is just the ease of getting my vocals with him like i couldn't believe oh yeah how wonderful my vocals were sounding and i also asked him at the beginning of it before we started anything to please not tune any of my vocals which we'll see, you know, like I know that he likes to tune vocals, so I'm sure that like he maybe took it with a grain of salt, but it doesn't sound terribly tuned to me, um, which I, I respect how much of the, the natural, you know, kind of imperfection he leaves in there. I mean, you, you can also sing. That's the thing. I try. Roger and I learned how to sing because of Hello Rock View. Howard built that song. He tuned everything. It was like, whoa, we have to pull this off. <laughs> I was really surprised to hear that because, I mean, especially for the first kind of version of autotune, I thought that that sounded really natural. I, I, I wouldn't, and I'm, feel like I'm very, my ear is pretty sensitive to it. Well, yeah, the, the horns sound awfully auto-tuned. That was the first version. We were like the one of the first records ever to use auto-tune. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the vocal's not too bad. Again, Roger and I could sing. It's just, we had to learn how to sing where Howard crafted the parts. I'd do a pass or two of the verse, he, and he'd say, hey, on the last pass here, kind of just do something different. What do you mean? I don't know, just kind of kind of be more aggressive. And then I'd do it, and he'd go, okay, we're moving to the next section. I'd be like, but wait a second, I didn't get that. He's like, 
I got everything. Let's move on. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you have that same sort of uh, sensation of ease working with him on vocals? I did, but he also whipped me when I needed it. Right. And I needed it as a young singer. Uh, I've always been very receptive to producers. I've at least wanted to listen to them. Yeah. And I've at least tried everything that they've wanted me to do. I may not have agreed with it. I might have thought it was stupid, but I would go along with it. And it made me a better singer for sure. Bottom line. Definitely. He has this way of encouraging too that um was very nice you know that not everybody not every producer has this sort of bedside manner where he is able to like really give you compliments in a in a way that is like you know not not gassing you up but also like it makes you feel like relaxed and you know is uh when you're doing something that he really likes he's he's uh, very good at pinpointing it well out of chorus too we get a dramatic scene change This musical, eight-bar musical interlude, I'm calling it, Before the Bridge, it's a single synth note that's holding out for all eight bars. As another synth, kind of like a flute sound, is playing a moving part. There's congas here, it sounds like, sporadic, maybe a timpani drum, and tambourine panned left and right, kind of doing this shuffle thing. It is so awesome. It reminds me almost like of a Spielberg flick with like some uh, uh, Latin festival in Miami. It's like a party, this part. When we got to this section, it was blank, I think, for a while, it was pretty much just the guitar kind of doing its thing, and then w- I got to hear the percussion idea once they they came in, and we d- and they just went crazy on that part. But the keys was all Benson, and he just told me, "I have something here. Just trust me. I'm bringing it home. I'll send it to you. It's gonna be crazy. Um, just trust me." And I was like, "Okay, man. Like, I, I, I at this point, he had complete trust with that kind of stuff. I just knew that he was going to like." take it to the place where it needed to go. And he totally did. There was zero notes when I got that back. And I think <laughs> that it's like a, a synth oboe or something with some sort of processing okay. through it. I believe okay. that's what the what the instrument is. That's at least how we refer to it. And it is bonkers. Was there a timpani in there? Do you remember? Like a big timpani yeah, I drum? Think, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that boom. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think it might be. I think that might be right. And the thing about this part, and I've talked about this on the show before, did you or anybody in the band go, man, this should almost be its own song, this part, <laughs> you know? And, I, and I've and i done that before. I've wasted a great set of chords and melodies on a bridge. It's like, well, wait a second. Like, I, am, am I wasting this here? Because that part is just so cool. Oh, thank you. Well, so much labor had been put into this song that we were just like trying to get it across the finish line because get it done oh totally i mean we had invested so much time into this especially for being a single like typically when we start to put so much thought and time into a song we sort of gild the lily and the song doesn't really land most of the time it seems like it just gets overcooked or something and i'm really grateful that it didn't happen with this song like we were still able to like you know, harness what what was good about it and and get it across the plate. Well, my my next favorite part comes right after, and it's the bridge. It's a double bridge, and this bridge is so interesting because the first time you sing it lower down an octave, and then you reach the second time. And I listened to this part a bunch. I'm going, why is this this is lifting? But you know, typically bridges don't run through the same lyrics two times, right. and it totally works here with the way you did the vocal delivery. And if you like, and if you like some other time, I would like to 
like to introduce you to the finer things If we survive, if we survive, get out alive I'd like to say how beautiful I think you are like and if you like some other time i would like to introduce you to the finer things if we survive if we survive get out alive i'd like to say how beautiful i think you are the first time you get that in you get r in there uh the band comes back in here uh with new slightly overdriven stereo guitars and they're doing this chugging pattern it's a different sound and a different feel there. Those jigga, 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 those guitars. It's it's awesome. Oh yeah. Well, you're talking about Hatch and Mike, and those guys were just absolutely crushers with guitar tones and getting everything. Like, I mean, th- those guys were basically for Mike with the guitar what Howard was for me for vocals. Like, they were just turning them out so quick. Like, I w- I remember just playing video games so much of the time during that record because things were happening so fast and there just frankly wasn't like enough work for us to do. Uh, everybody was just so good at getting the performances that they needed. Their studio is like a conveyor belt. Yep, you know, exactly. you're in here working on guitars, the guy's over here working on vocals and someone else is editing drums in another room. That's all going on simultaneously. And that's why those guys can kick out records as, as quickly as they do. They're not spending six months on a record like it was back in the day going to tape. It took that long to get these majorly produced, uh, great sounding commercial records. Uh, again, the vocal first time here is ghosted with a higher unison vocal it's not a harmony the second time the higher vocal is now the lead that's where it lifts there uh with call and response backing vocals uh, on the first line it's and if you like and if you like and then if we survive if we survive you get those backing vocal call and responses and there's harmonies on lines three and six i would like to introduce you to the finer things and i'd like to say how beautiful i think you are you get some harmonies there the last time I'd like to say how beautiful I think. You don't get the R there because uh, this big snare fill comes in with this noisy guitar-like noise that launches us in to chorus three, which this chorus goes two and a half times. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite a double here.
again, we get the same lyrics here all the time. Uh, on the first line, you get Don't Let It Go, a backing vocal. Yeah. And there's some new single piano notes that come in here on the second half of Chorus 3. Uh, the second half, we get those vocal ahs. Those pads come back in. And as the song's fading out, when another round of chorus vocals start on the fade out, there's a new keyboard at the very end. It sounds like single notes on a Rhodes yeah. keyboard that happened there. And it's so cool to just have that little bit of, of something extra as the song's fading out. Do you remember that that uh, happening? No, that must have happened in Brian's session while I was simultaneously doing vocals. But I, I would imagine that's probably Benson hearing that in the same sort of way that he hears backup vocals and probably just asked, you know, Brian to, to throw in some stabs there. Now, you guys, you've done very well for yourselves. You got a lot of great, great pop songs. What is it about this track? Why did this one bubble to the top with your fan base? What What do you think it is? I don't know. I, I was actually really pleasantly surprised to hear that you picked this song. I mean, I'm glad we did, because, especially because of the Benson ties. But I did. I actually had never really considered it like much of a fan favorite, even uh, you know, regardless of it being a single. We even sort of didn't necessarily play it at every show for a, a lot of our active touring period. Yeah, because like I honestly, people weren't really cr- crying about us not playing it. Other people were, you know, uh, had uh, attachments to the older stuff, which as they do sometimes. Interesting. So, and okay. now it has like grown to be, you know, somewhat of a favorite, but it's not like it does not set the crowd on fire, you know like some of the even the deeper cuts do so i don't know but i do think that it's one of our best songs and i think it's probably our best single so and i'm i'm really proud of it i think it's it it stands alone as as a unique song in our catalog and it you know feels like it, it walks this line of like having some talking heads and like lcd sound system influence that you know was definitely um penetrating at the time and i'm i'm glad it came through because you know like we are sort of like you know color inside the lines a lot of the times for our sound. So this was maybe the furthest we were able to experiment with a, a pop single and to do it in an effective way. I'm, I'm really happy with that. And I'm happy that we sort of like reclaimed om- ownership of the song live. That's awesome. Well, hey, Kenny, I want to thank you for taking the time out to sit in with us. I know the listeners are going to gonna get a thrill out of listening to this. And before we break, is there anything you'd like to, to leave people with? What's going on with you in the starting line? Honestly, man, this show is so fantastic. I have to give you your flowers for this. Like, Not enough people <laughs> give you compliments on what a gracious host you are and how eloquently you speak and ask these songs that are... I mean, like... You ask these questions about these songs, you know, like Trevor from Face to Face and Disconnected and like Milo and Hope. Like these are songs that like uh, this band would not exist if it had not been for these songs. And that was really what set me on the path to find um, the sound of this band and like to be included in that crowd and to be asked the same questions in the same way that you're asking those guys like I really appreciate it, man. I feel I find it a great honor. Thank you so much. That that is rad, man. Thank you. Yo, thank you, man. Uh, and to answer your other question, uh, ah! thanks for giving me that. But uh, starting line is making the rounds with uh, All American Rejects this summer. Uh, doing a couple of dates with Andrew McMahon in uh, a few weeks, depending on when this drops. And then I'm in a band called Vacationer, and we have new music on the horizon. So please check it out. Well, tell the Rejects guys and Newfound I said hello this summer. A thousand percent. It was so good talking with you, Chris. Thank you. You're the only one I want, someone any other one. Only, only, only. 
song that you're hearing right now is Magnetism from Vacationer. If you haven't listened to Vacationer, you should do that today because they're really, really awesome. And I thought that Kenny was a really awesome guest on the podcast. And Chris and I are going to talk all about it in the rap segment that's coming up. Also, we got the band You Might Not Know coming up right after a few words from our sponsors. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey everybody, Satan here. I know what you're thinking. Jesus Christ, Satan has a podcast now too? No, no, that's not it. But I am here to tell you about a podcast, and it's one that's all about my favorite band, Punchline. Not the band you expected me to say, right? You probably figured I'd like Slayer, or maybe some backwards Beatles records or something. Those are okay. But you usually find me rocking out to fan-favorite punchline albums like Action or Lion while I'm torturing dead people for all of eternity. Punchline's podcast is called A Band Called Punchline, and it's super entertaining to listen to this documentary-style look back at the 25 years of my favorite band. Honestly, I'm really feeling like I'm getting to know these guys, and their story is amazing! I'm so ready for them to get down here. I have so many questions. I gotta give them credit for catching on to my whole 37 thing, too. There's a reason why they're my favorite band, and if you listen to their podcast, they might become yours, too. A band called Punchline is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out, and I'll see you all in hell. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to make a podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is The Pretty Flowers, a four-piece indie rock band from Los Angeles, California, comprised of Noah Green on vocals and guitar, Jake Gideon on guitar and vocals, Sam Tiger on bass and vocals, and Sean Johnson on the drums. Their brand new record, A Company Sleeve, is out now. Here's a snippet of their song, Baby Food. They spun the truth like a top. Too much momentum to stop. They spoon fed the truth to you. And you ate it up like baby The Rap with Chris and Chris. Chris, I thought this was a great episode. The starting line, we played a few shows together here and there. Always thought Kenny was super cool and always really loved his voice, like the tone of his voice, his vocal quality. Always a huge fan. He's really great at writing a great pop song. And, you know, I thought it was super interesting in this episode 
when he described what I would call an artistic crisis. When you're in a band that achieves some sort of success, you will inevitably face at some point some sort of artistic crisis. And Chris, usually it's one of two things in my experience. Either A, it's what Kenny described where you're in the studio and they talk about bringing in someone else to play something. And as an artist, you're like, oh man, I I can't handle that. Or B, it's the situation where you're going to play on some sort of television situation where you have to pantomime playing your your song. Yeah. Those are the two artistic crises that I can think of. Have you ever experienced those sort of crises? I think you uh you alluded to that like Oh yeah, yeah, we we've had it. We've had the conversations where, you know, some guys in the band didn't want to co-write and other people did right. want to co-write and there's all those kinds of hiccups. I think you know, with this, it was it was so funny getting into this episode because much like the uh, episode with Nick, uh, All American Rejects, it's like here we are again. It's the same team at Bay Seven Studios, Howard Benson and the whole gang, and I just know how they work. And to have other guys share their experience, you know, you do sign up for these things inadvertently when you, as you said, you get to some point of success, and those hiccups they just come with it. You got to make a decision. It's at some point you're going to be faced with a fork in the road where it's like. Do I do this thing that I feel like is against my artistic integrity, but might lead to more success or do I whatever? To me, it's all silly. I think most importantly, you serve the song. Sure. And in this instance with this song, which I think is an incredible song. It sounds amazing. I think they made the right decision. They served the song. Absolutely. And the drummer is always the first one to go in the studio. They're the first ones to typically to get replaced. It's always about the groove. Your band's not going to get signed and get into the studio if your singer sucks. They're going to they're going right. to completely get that out of the, they're going to get that out of the way. Change your singer before I sign you. So rarely do you get in the studio and have to you know hey we got to bring in another vocalist to do this part. It's usually the drummer. But you know what? Again, sometimes that's the cost of doing business. I I think the song is the proof of uh, what they got out of it. It was a really interesting story how they got the mixes back from Howard from their second album where he he mixed a few songs for Based on a True Story. Yeah, a couple singles. Yeah, and they were like kind of put off by by what they got back in certain ways. But then they met with him and he was so honest that they're like, okay, we want to do this. We want to record with him. But then they're also battling kind of, to a certain extent, during the recording. And hey, man, sometimes... Oh, was it? It actually might have been Nick from All-American Rejects episode where he said, like, sometimes that's where you get something great is like having those those sort of battles, you know? It, mm-hmm. it, the resulting product is sometimes great. Yeah, and I've known Howard long enough and other producers that think like him. You know, it's not this diabolical, methodical, you know, I'm going to go in there tomorrow and tell them their drummer stinks. It's, you know, they'll be recording a record for two or three weeks and it's Howard sitting at home when his family goes to sleep and him listening at night, sitting there editing where it finally hits him. Oh, the snare on the two and four, it, it needs to be there. You know, those things. So, you know, I, I can sympathize with, yeah, my artistic uh, integrity has been compromised here, but 
I don't think it was malicious coming from the producer's chair. Yeah. Another thing that he said in this episode that I totally related to, and I know that my bandmates would relate to this. He said, when you overcook a song, sometimes it just doesn't land. And by the time it's done, you're like, what did we do here? You spend all this time trying to make this song happen. It reminds me of Mean Girls. You're uh, you're trying to make Fetch happen here. It's (laughs) Yeah. Just sometimes if you go too hard on a song, it just doesn't end up anywhere near where it started. And it's like the story we hear so many times in this podcast. Sometimes these songs that took five minutes to write, you know, that just spill out of you end up being the most popular songs. One more thing he said that I thought was really cool and insightful was that he said that chart success is fleeting. We all know that. He's so right. Look at your band, Chris. Look at Starting Line. Look at all these bands that have these followings you guys for 30 years now and you haven't had like a a giant hit but you have this cult following you have this huge fan base and think about how many bands have had hits that have not even one one thousandth of what you have i know you know so it is true that that chart success is just it's whatever you know it's cool it's cool to say i guess and for some people it does work out but for most people really doesn't. That's right. Well, something else cool to say, Chris, for everybody out there listening, we have a supporting cast at ChrisDemakes.com where you get bonus episodes each week for about the price of a cup of coffee. ChrisDemakes.com. You'll be supporting the podcast that we hope you know and love right here. So thank you very much to all our members that are part of it. It's a good time. Once again, ChrisDemakes.com. And uh, give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. Give Chris Fafalius a follow on Instagram at yeah. Chris Fafalius. I think it's just your name, right? It's just my name. Uh, you got to figure out how to spell it. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. That, that's uh, that, that's up to you out there. And uh, if you haven't already, please join the Chris Makes a Podcast Facebook group. We have a great time over there. Almost 5,000 active members. I want to thank this week's guest, Kenny Vasoli, for sitting with us. And we'll see you next week. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Past the Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come baby come and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? 
How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020 zero dash d.com soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app